1: In 2008, Democrats swept into Washington, winning the House, the Senate, and the White House on the back of anger at Republicans over the financial crisis that was threatening to bring down the global economy. It was an exclamation point at the end of a decades-long era of deregulation and neoliberalism. A new era is still struggling to be born from the ashes of that old one, and it has been shaped in significant part by the Democratic response to that financial crisis once the party took power. A new podcast by reporter David Sirota, in collaboration with documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney, takes a close look at the decisions made in those pivotal years, the ways in which the consequences linger, and what we can learn from it. It's called The Meltdown, and I highly recommend giving it a listen, only after you've caught up on the back catalogue of Deconstructed, of course. David Sirota was an aide to then Congressman Bernie Sanders back in the 1990s before launching a career as an investigative journalist. He put that on pause to be a speechwriter for the 2020 Sanders presidential campaign, and is now editor of the news outlet he founded called The Daily Poster. David, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, congratulations on the podcast. Um, it's some good news. It seems like it's doing well. It is one of the it one is. of the most listened to podcasts right now on the on the interwebs
2: on the on the World Wide Web. Yes, and you know it's not an easy podcast to promote because there's. Uh, some very powerful people and corporate media hostility to it. So, but clearly there's a, a listener appetite for it.
1: It, it. Yeah, it kind of fits in a place where there isn't much media right. that wants to hear the message. Right. Like the right wing doesn't want to hear it for a lot of obvious reasons. MSNBC, CNN don't really want to hear it much either. Um, what? So, I wanted to have you on this week because it feels like we're in. You know, the moment is not similar. The moment is how should I put this? It's not it's not as if we just came out of a great financial crisis like two thousand seven, two thousand and eight. we We are emerging, hopefully from a crisis. We do have uh, democratic control of the House Senate and the presidency with the with the public expecting that Democrats are going to deliver on something that they that they campaigned on. And your podcast is about the failure of the Democrats to do that last time. And so let's start with Rick Santelli. We want to get to our task force right now. Rick Santelli and Jason Roney of Sharma Capital are standing by at the CME Group in Chicago. The rant heard around the world. The government is promoting bad behavior because we certainly don't want to put stimulus forth and give people a whopping eight or ten dollars in their check and think that they ought to save it. What do you think he tapped into with that rant?
2: Well, look. I think Rick Santelli managed to uh, singularly encapsulate how the right, uh, the American right, was able to turn a defense of Wall Street into a populist crusade, and to turn help to working people uh, into uh, somehow unnecessary and a and a horrible government boondoggle and and giveaway. Uh, the Santelli rant, you'll notice. He literally is calling people who are being thrown out of their homes losers. How about this, president and new administration? Why don't you put up a website to have people vote on the Mm. Internet as a referendum to see if we really want to subsidize the
0: losers' mortgages?
2: He is standing on the floor of a stock exchange, or a a trading floor, with traders around him. They're cheering him on.
0: They're they're, 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 they're like putting it. They're like putty in your hands. Did you hear? No, they're not, Joe. They're not like putty in our hands.
1: This is America. How many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills? Raise their hand.
0: How about
1: we all? Uh, President Obama, are you listening?
2: And he is railing on the idea of the government providing direct help to homeowners. And he's calling the people who are being thrown out of their homes the losers. Uh, He's saying we should help the people who uh, carry the water rather than drink the water. I mean, it's this whole amalgam of every right-wing trope. But what's interesting is it's a right-wing trope in the language of almost left-wing New Deal-style populism. It's anti-populism presented as populism. and. You know, I, I think that what it, what the Democrats could have done to combat that, is to first and foremost, if not ignore it, just not allow it to uh, be taken seriously by them on a policy level. Not try to appease that, and instead simply deliver as much help, uh, direct help to people as possible. But that's not what the Democrats did. I mean, the Democrats came into office. During and after the financial crisis, they did not redirect the bank bailout into lots of direct help for homeowners. They kept it as a top down. Bailout, handing most of the money to a handful of financial institutions. They did not pass the promised bankruptcy reform to help keep people in their homes. They did not prosecute uh, any Wall Street banker uh, involved in the financial crisis. Uh, they did slap on the wrist settlements with some of these major financial institutions, and that was it. Uh, they uh, did not break up the banks. And let's be clear that didn't happen to the Democrats. That's what the Democrats used their power to do. Obama did not want to have the necessary battle with the uh, with the conservative elements of his party and his own Wall Street donor base. And so there wasn't enough help delivered to regular people and the Republicans took advantage of that.
1: And there are echoes of of that Santelli argument in the student loan debate. 100% you know, because Santelli's saying, well, you know, somebody built an extra bathroom, an extra bedroom, and now they can't pay for it. You know, why should we be bailing them out? You hear people saying, well, you know, somebody went to a private school and has this big debt. Why should they be bailed out? But, but I should, but I shouldn't. What do you think is the response to that? The
2: response to that is to not let it psych you out. Uh, there was a, you know, there's there was a situation that we unburied uh, some history from 2009, 2010 that's directly relevant to this. Uh, Throughout the first year or two of the Obama administration, there was this mantra from Santelli and the Republicans in Congress saying the Democrats are profligately spending. They want to give out free stuff, right? That was their mantra, free stuff to people. And the Democrats internalized it and what they ended up doing is they ended up trying to meet that, to appease that, to compromise with that by specifically rescinding about $300, 350000000000 billion of the TARP bailout uh, rescinding the Obama administration's power to use that money to directly help people. And they went out and they touted themselves as great deficit hawks. Look at how fiscally responsible we are being right now. You see, we, we hear the, what the Republicans are saying and look at us. We're, we're, we're taking the argument seriously. And so they literally rescinded the money that they all they didn't need a bill to pass that it was on the books mm-hmm. they could have taken that 300 350 billion dollars and actually used it to help people but instead they decided to rescind it and tout themselves as deficit hawks and so that didn't really work out it wasn't good economic policy it wasn't morally good. And it certainly wasn't a politically good idea because they got shellacked in the election. And so I think when you update it to, let's say, the student loan debate here, yes, the Republicans are making all the arguments you just said. But directly helping millions of people is probably your best way to compete in a midterm election that's going to be difficult anyway. To be able to go out and say to people, to millions of people, here is how we've helped you. Specific, you can see how we've helped you. And there are, you know, millions of student debtors across this country. If If you go into the election with not very many things to say you did and to ask people, hey, listen, do you see what we did for you? If you don't have many things to point to, then you're probably making your political problem worse. And I would argue you're probably making your political problem far worse than if the major criticism of you is you helped too many people too much.
1: Right, and objectively speaking, you can look at the electoral outcomes from it. And everybody focuses on on 2010, but what I think gets lost, and you get into this toward the end of your uh, podcast, is is 2014 and and 2016. You know, the very... Slow economic recovery created hostile conditions for Democrats in 2014. That then blew up when you had this—you know—Ebola shows up in Texas, and and ISIS goes on the march across Iraq and Syria. So you have these exogenous circumstances, but that those were layered over top of this difficult—you know—financial, you know, this economic recovery that wasn't what it could—wasn't ha- what it could have been. If they don't lose the Senate in 2014, you know, Merrick Garland is a supreme court justice and who knows how who who knows how 2016 goes if the economy is doing you know a, a little bit better and i was i was glad in your podcast that you that you dove into the details of, of the hamp program because i think that that's connected to this um, can can you t- tell people you know what, what hamp was
2: Sure, HAMP was the government's the, – the small piece of the government's response that actually was at least ostensibly designed to directly help homeowners. Uh, but what it ended up doing because it didn't want to either provide direct government aid to homeowners uh, and it didn't want to really challenge the power of the banks or make the banks take losses – The HAMP program ended up being this Rube Goldberg machine where people could apply uh, for uh, loan modification and the government sort of tried to incentivize uh, banks and and lenders and and mortgage processors to uh, allow for some temporary modifications. But in many cases, the modifications were only temporary and people ended up being thrown out of their homes. We tell a story about one woman who this happened to, that she was, she tried to get help. Uh, it was this horrible process of being buried in paperwork. She couldn't figure out who to talk to, and it's a very you know, smart person who was navigating, trying to navigate this system. Uh, and she ultimately got some help uh, that stretched out her situation for a few months, but ultimately she got foreclosed on. And And what was really revealing about this was that it came out that some policymakers in the Obama administration acknowledged that that was actually the point. And this is what was so so dark and horrible about this part of the reporting, is that is that there was this scene in which Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner uh, is being asked about. This problem with the HAMP program, why are, why are we only stretching out the foreclosures? Are, why aren't we providing direct aid to people? What, what are we doing here? And Tim Geithner, according to uh, TARP Inspector General Neil Borofsky, turned to Elizabeth Warren, who was asking him about this. Elizabeth Warren wasn't in the Senate, by the way. She was one of the bailout overseers. He turned to her and he said, what you don't understand is that this program is designed to foam the runway for the banks. And that phrase, foam the runway, the idea being that they were trying to stretch out the foreclosures uh, and not uh, necessarily halt them so that the banks would have time to financially recover themselves. So in other words, human beings being thrown out of their homes were the foam on the runway for the banks, which really tells you what you need to know about what the overall policy goal of the Obama administration was. They made a decision that they had to save Wall Street, which not incidentally was uh, had given the most amount of money to Barack Obama's campaign in the history of presidential politics, they made the decision that they that to save the economy, they had to first and foremost save Wall Street. Now, maybe you could say it's not corruption. Maybe you say it's ideology. Maybe you just say it's a principled disagreement or a principled belief. Uh, and, and there's one phrase that, 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 that Geithner, I believe it was Geithner who used, said, we, that's how we saved the economy but lost the country. And what's important to know is how historically anomalous that is from the Democratic Party itself. Uh, FDR, uh, not that he was a perfect president, but he came in uh, during an economic crisis. And there's a lot of evidence, a lot of his quotes, a lot of the things he said was that he understood that there had to be a bottom-up. If, if, if there was going to be a bailout or investments, it had to be bottom-up. And he understood that it had to be bottom-up for, for actually for three reasons. It was morally right. People were starving. Uh, it was economically a better policy. And then he also made all sorts of statements saying that this is the way to stop the rise of fascism, that if you do not help the working class – in a crisis, then you are creating the conditions for authoritarians and fascists to take advantage of the desperation. And fascism was on the rise in in the Great Depression here in the United States. And so what 2009, 2010, leading into the Trump era, suggests is that FDR was right because the Democrats, the, the, the
1: modern version
2: of the Democrats, didn't do what FDR did, and it ended up creating the conditions for Trump.
1: I want to linger on this policy decision by the Obama Treasury Department for a moment because I think for some listeners it might sound too crazy to even be believable that they, that they actively chose to save Wall Street by sacrificing homeowners and by tricking homeowners. And you, and you talk about the way that HAMP was designed, that it, it would pay these servicers a, a, a participation fee. For becoming involved in this in this HAMP program, and so the servicers would reach out to to homeowners, or, or homeowners could connect with servicers and say, "Look, you know, we're gonna we're gonna temporarily modify your loan. If you make your temporary modified payments, these new payments that we've agreed to that are more in line with what the property values are than than what your original mortgage was. If you make those payments, then from there we can move you into." Permanent, you know, thirty-year fixed loan at that rate because you've shown you can you can pay this modified mortgage. We're going to keep you. We're going to keep you in your house. The companies would get a a fee for you know pulling those people into the temporary uh, program, but had no real incentive to move them from the temporary uh, to the permanent. And so they would have people just continue in this temporary program forever, constantly dangling in front of them the prospect that they could get into the permanent one. Then often, and I remember we did a lot of reporting on this at the time, often they would tell them, the way that you can get permanent relief is to default. You know, you have to now stop paying for a couple of months. And once you've defaulted, then you're eligible for this program. And the homeowner's like, really? You're telling me to default? That sounds strange. That's not intuitive at all. (laughs) But okay, you're the, you know, you're the representative of the government here. I'll I'll do that. So then they do that for a couple of months, and then bang, they get foreclosed on. That's right. That's right. Uh, and and,
2: and, and, right. and w- what we have to understand is that this was this was by design. And, and there's other contextual information to, under, to know that it was by design. Let's remember that the Troubled Asset Relief Program, the name of the bailout, was sold as a program that was going to buy troubled assets buy mortgages so that the government would own the mortgages and that would put the government in a position to write down those mortgages to keep people in their homes. But that's not what the Troubled Asset Relief Program ended up doing. Because it was written as a blank check, what policymakers, the Bush administration and then the Obama administration did, was use their uh, authority to essentially give the money to the banks not to necessarily buy up mortgages, millions of mortgages, and write them down. The government did not reform the bankruptcy laws. This issue of cramdown, which is really one of the most mind-boggling ones of all to me, which is that right now in current bankruptcy law, uh, a wealthy person – uh, can get bankruptcy protection for their yacht, for their second home, their investment properties, but written into the bankruptcy law are provisions that say you cannot get bankruptcy protection for your primary residence. So bankruptcy judges were during the crisis were prevented If a homeowner goes into court and says, I can't pay my mortgage, the bankruptcy judge cannot say to the bank, hey, bank, I know this person owes you $200,000, but the house is only worth $150,000 now. The bankruptcy judge can't say, okay, the the homeowner only owes $150,000 now. That keeps them in the house. Uh, that means the bank has to take some losses, uh, but the bank still gets some mortgage payments. The bankruptcy judge can't do any of that. And Obama campaigned very explicitly in a populist way, campaigned uh, saying the bankruptcy system was ridiculous, uh, saying that cram down – that's what – what allowing the, those, th- that to be written down. Cram the mortgage down. Yeah. Cram down. And they got into Congress and Obama's administration – Uh, essentially sided with the conservative Democrats who were uncomfortable with this. Why were they uncomfortable with it? Because of their uh, alliance with Wall Street. So my point in mentioning all of that is, is that so you take TARP not buying mortgages, you take Congress and the Obama administration not doing cram down, then you add into it the HAMP program Uh, which strung people along in order to not – essentially not force the banks to actually take losses. And what you get is not something that was accidental. What you see is a deliberate set of policy choices, again, to use millions of human beings as the foam on the runway for the banks, as opposed to using the bank's massive wealth to foam the runway
1: for the voters, and to add to that, uh, Jeff Merkley, senator from Oregon, actually got a an explicit commitment from the White House that they would support cram down, in order for him to vote for the second mm-hmm. tranche of the bailout. Because if people forget, like it was, the bailout ended up being split between the Bush administration and the Obama administration, and in order to get kind of the second tranche of it. They had to push it through the Senate again, and Merkley Merkley said, "I'm only doing this, you know, if you promise that you're going to make a, a real commitment to homeowners." And they made that promise. Like they 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 told Merkley, and he has said this publicly. Uh, they said, "Okay, you got it. You know, we're we're going to do this," and then they just simply did not. Uh, they 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 broke that. They broke. They ref- and, and
2: look, Austin Goolsbee from the Obama administration is on our podcast, and he basically said they wanted to do it, but the conservative Democrats in the Congress uh, blocked it. Now, there's two things that are true there, or all things can be true. It is true that there were conservative Democrats in this, in the Senate who were siding with Wall Street. That's absolutely true. But it's also true that the Obama administration refused to have a fight over that. I mean, they just refused. Like that's the. I think that's a, a larger point here that you can always offer up a rotating villain. Now it's Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Uh, It's been Joe Lieberman at times. Uh, Sometimes it's been a group of conservative Democrats, Ben Nelson and the like. But the point is, is that yes, there's always going to be a rotating villain. But if you're the most powerful person in the world, the president, you have a lot of tools at your disposal to try to actually get things done. So what... Always ends up happening is is that the Democratic president and their defenders cite the rotating villain as why things can't be done, but they never they are rarely, I can't think of an example, they're rarely willing to actually have a fight. They're rarely willing to actually use the leverage that they have to actually try to get the thing done. I mean, it's like I, I don't subscribe to the so-called Green Lantern theory. Of the presidency, that the president can do whatever he wants at all times and has all, you know, is completely unilaterally all powerful. But I also don't think the president is a powerless, uh, you know, figurehead who can't do anything. And what we've seen Obama, and now I think we see in a lot of ways uh, Joe Biden use this idea that oh, we've got these, you know, members of my my party are being uh, uh, obstructionist, and there's just there's just nothing we can do about it. This conflict aversion. Stops feeling like uh, a a principled decision, or 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 a we a decision of weakness, and it's after so many times it starts to feel deliberate. Like this is a ruse, this is a game, this is all rigged. This is the Washington Generals playing the Harlem Globetrotters, and I think voters sense that you keep telling me you're going to do things then you get into power and you tell me there's whatever rotating villain of the day uh, opposes what you promised you're going to do then you say you can't do anything about this rotating villain then i get screwed and then you ask me for my vote again in the next election and lots of voters are saying no you're not getting our vote
0: hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot
1: And the, the 2012 election that that Barack Obama ran is is one that a lot of Democratic consultants you know point to as the only time since maybe FDR that uh, a Democratic president ran an actual you know populist campaign when it came to when it came to that messaging. And I think they're particularly proud of it because they can they can think back to them their teenage selves when they when they still kind of you know believed in something. And thinks yes, we, you know we we did this, you know they painted they successfully painted Mitt Romney as this you know bloodsucking capitalist, um, which despite you know his cheery demeanor, like the things that Bain Capital did to make its money are just absolutely gruesome, and they successfully you know made that made that argument, and they ran on what they had done you know for the auto industry, you know people forget that you know, bailing out the auto industry and saving those, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs in, in Michigan and Wisconsin in particular, you know, probably played a a major role in in why those states went for Obama in 2012, but did not go for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Because I'm, I, I suspect a lot of those voters looked at uh, Hillary Clinton and thought that she would have agreed with Romney, that uh, Detroit ought to have gone bankrupt. And so it's an interesting... Counterexample, because bailing out the auto industry is the type of thing, and and Rahm Emanuel said at the time, "F the UAW." That that was his sophisticated strategic advice. You know, just let it let it all go under. He wanted to watch it burn. If you believe in the kind of Santelli vision of of politics, you would say it's not fair. You know, just because you know you look, you work in the auto industry. Yeah, you know your your cars, uh, you know got got beaten by Japanese cars and by German cars. Too bad, you know. We're, we as the taxpayer are not bailing you out. And, and, so, and there's a, there's right. a discrepancy between how the
2: Obama administration treated the auto industry versus how it treated Wall Street. That I think is so mm-hmm. revealing. Yeah. yeah, yeah uh, yes. It,
1: exactly. I, I mean, go, they, go, and go ahead. Yeah.
2: The Obama administration fired the top executives of GM. Uh, they w- they went in there. They got tough with the auto industry. I mean, granted, they they did bail them out, but there was a lot more strings attached and a lot more of a tough-minded uh, behavior by the government when it came to the auto industry. None of that happened with Wall Street. Uh, the Obama administration treated Wall Street with kid gloves. It, re- it rewarded them. There weren't mass firings of top executives at the Wall Street banks that were getting taxpayer money. Uh, and, and, and look, I think as it relates to the 2012 election – Obama has been called, in some ways, uh, politically speaking, electorally, one of the luckiest candidates ever. That think about it, uh, his his Senate run, it, w- the the candidates that he faced in that 2004 general election and and in the primary w- was a complete disaster. It was a clown show, right?
1: He right. ends one, up one guy divorce papers come out and catch him <laughs> right. like the the, the <laughs> Republican. Right. Yeah,
2: And look, it's not to begrudge him like some politicians, they, they get lucky. They, they have good timing and, and that's just what politics is. So it's not to begrudge him for that. But I think 2012 was another example of that. If you're running after not really delivering real help to working people and you've delivered a huge amount of help to Wall Street and you're running for reelection, the best thing you can draw as an opponent is Gordon Gecko. And the Republican Party produced Gordon Gecko as its nominee, an absolute cartoon of a financial executive. I mean, one of his primary opponents, Mitt Romney's primary opponents, I think it was Mike Huckabee, essentially said he's the guy who looks like the boss who laid you off. Yes, uh, And so, like, it's not to say – yes, Obama ran a, a decent 2012 campaign. But let's be honest. He, he, the luck of the draw – Really served him well, and and it's it's kind of horrifying to imagine what that election would have looked like with Donald Trump as the nominee, or with a Ron DeSantis kind of person as the nominee. I, I think that and another example with Mike Huckabee as the nominee. I, I think that is a a disastrous situation for Democrats four years earlier than the 2016 election.
1: Right, and he ended up just squeaking by. Well, I. I, I Squeaking by isn't exactly right. By the end of it, he won, you know, fairly comfortably. But it was it was touch and go. Yeah. Um. For for a while, even and although in, in today's climate, Mitt Romney'd be more likely to get the Democratic nomination. Yeah, I, know. I know. Than the Republican nomination. Um. You touch briefly on, uh, the AIG bonuses, that that really. Uh, but you you don't you don't you don't Elaborate on them too much. So, for people who are going li- to go listen to your your podcast, and I encourage everybody to do so, let's let's dive into those a little bit too, because those that was a very pivotal moment. And there, there I, I've talked to Obama White House officials who say that, like, that was the moment uh, that we really lost the country that we really lost the narrative. It was also a moment where, to your point, they just didn't fight. So, hundred percent, and it was a huge.
2: A huge, if in some ways a tempest in a teapot, but also in other ways exemplary of the problem. Essentially, what happened was Obama got into office. Now, look, there's there's this debate: who who created the bailout? Was it Obama? Was it Bush? Was it both? It was both of them. They both created. Obama came off the campaign trail in 2008 to put his imprimatur on the bailout. That was a, a big moment: uh, the TARP bailout. So, so both parties. Are responsible for the bailout as a whole,
1: right? Obama, and the house, the house voted it down. That's right. Um, that's the right. The first time around, with a lot of uh, congressional black caucus uh, opposition to it, and Obama worked the CBC, and again right. prom, promised homeowner relief. That's right. You know, that's right. If, so, the, if they would come back around,
2: right? So there's the you know, I I've, there are some folks in the Democratic establishment who will argue, oh, that was Bush's bailout, it wasn't Obama's. That's that's nonsense. It was both parties' bailout. So Obama gets in the office, and remember, the bailout gave uh, the executive branch almost unilateral authority to do whatever it wanted with the bailout. And what ended up happening was that, that Chris Dodd, the senator from uh, Connecticut, very close to Wall Street, uh, insert, made a big thing about inserting a provision into the stimulus bill the all-too-small stimulus bill, this spending bill designed to get the economy going again. He inserted this provision that purported to put limits on executive pay and and compensation at financial institutions that had received uh, government bailout money. Big thing about, oh, we're cracking down on executive pay, taxpayer money, shouldn't be able to subsidize executive bonuses, all that. So that happens. That gets put into the stimulus bill. Then a little while later, it comes out that AIG, which was one of the central financial institutions in the entire crisis, AIG is using the bailout money it got in part to sponsor giant bonuses for its executives. Uh, The 30 seconds on AIG about what its role in the financial crisis was, AIG was offering so-called insurance on all of the big banks' bets absurd risky bets on the mortgage market and the AIG insurance policies were essentially bets under themselves and AIG had no was selling all was backing all of all of this with insurance knowing that it almost certainly did not have the money to pay the claims if and when the housing market went south. They were essentially betting the housing market wasn't going to go south. So AIG was a central player. I mean, it was absolutely, arguably, some people say, the driver of the financial crisis, that without the insurance, the banks wouldn't have bet so big. But because AIG was the insurer, it created a kind of moral hazard. Anyway, AIG, this is a big scandal. AIG is using the bailout money, uh, part of the bailout money, to pay excessive huge uh, bonuses. People started asking questions, "How did this happen? I thought Chris Dodd said that he you know, put this thing in the stimulus bill and prevent this from happening. And it came out that the Treasury Department essentially tweaked the language or requested Dodd tweak the language, Tim although Deitner, I have, essentially
1: I have some reporting on this in my book, actually. they They went to his staff. They went directly to Dodd's staff without Dodd even knowing it <laughs> and, got, and got and got it and got it changed. and right, Dodd's so- ended Dodd's career
2: to to essentially grandfather in AIG's existing contracts just to basically say the argument was the that the language said the that AIG could honor its contracts to pay bonuses essentially to the people who had helped create the financial crisis and Chris Dodd came out and said Chris Dodd was running for was potentially running for re-election it could have been a tough re-election uh, and he he was he had taken money from AIG donors and he basically said yeah I put it in there at the request of the Obama administration. And here's why this is not important cuz because it wasn't it, it was it was I think 170 some million dollars. That's a lot of money. Uh, it's not a huge amount of money in terms of the in terms of the federal budget. But here's why it was important. It gave the Republicans and the right a political bailout that everyone from Glenn Beck to the Senate Republicans started pointing at this as Everything from proof that Obama was incompetent to they're not in control to they're actually corrupt and using, uh, using taxpayer money uh, to uh, public money to help uh, the people who had created the financial crisis, some of which were their donors. So it allowed the Republicans – just after they had gotten shellacked in the 2008 election, it allowed them to go on the offense and portray themselves
1: – as the defend the little guy populists and it became Obama's bailout at that like that was the moment, and this yes. is what White House people will say too that that was the moment that it became that we took ownership of oh and of i the forgot so,
2: I forgot to say the icing on the cake the icing on the cake was there were a number of rank and file house Democrats uh, who who were who I think were genuinely shot they they said I thought I voted for a bill that I thought the the stimulus I voted for you know it's a thousand page bill I thought the stimulus I voted for dealt with this and they were a lot of fo- Ed Markey was ticked off a lot of rank and file House Democrats w- felt duped and so they proposed a uh, 90% tax on these kinds of bonuses to try to claw back the money uh, that was going to go out the door And Obama had a choice to make. He could have applauded that. Instead, he went on 60 Minutes and gave this academic argument about how this was an overwrought response. And he essentially stomped out even the response to the scandal from his own party. In other words, he went to bat for Wall Street against his own party that was, at least elements of, were trying to fix the situation after it had become a scandal.
1: Right, because if you could say like, "All right, Geithner got away with you know sneaking one past uh, the, the goalie by going directly to s- the staff in the in the finance committee and, and and slipping that in," but right, they're not powerless. To your point, right, exactly, there is a way to fight back and say, "Okay, guess what? We're taxing all of those bonuses back." Uh, then the reason I w- wanted to bring up the, the auto bailout is, is to is to make the point that these you know targeted relief programs. You know, two particular industries, two particular groups of people do not necessarily have to be politically toxic. Like you don't necessarily have to lose the country to save the economy. So now that now here we are, uh, deja vu, Democrats have spent months kind of you know watering down you know, the the build back better bill, the, the agenda that Biden is trying to push through Congress. Uh, just like in 2009, they lost to Virginia. They lost to New Jersey too in 2009 and are starting to reckon with the reality of losing their their house, house majorities. H- have you seen Democrats learn lessons from 2009? Uh, or do you think I, that- I, I think you know. there
2: was a chance that they, and there was a signal that they have learned lessons. Chuck Schumer at the very beginning of mm-hmm. the Biden presidency said something to the effect of, we're not going to make the same mistake we made last time.
1: Now yeah. Went on Rachel was, Maddow, yeah.
2: Yeah, and he was specifically saying, we're not going to make the mistake of trying or fetishizing bipartisanship. We're just going to pass what needs to be passed uh, at this moment in time, and we're, we're not going to make the mistake of trying to, trying to do whatever we can uh, to get Republican support uh, that we're not going to get. And they passed uh, the first rescue plan, which I think suggested that they maybe they've actually figured this out. The rescue plan was much better than the first Obama stimulus. Uh, it provided direct help to lots of people. It didn't try a kind of Rube Goldberg machine or a top-down sort of, we'll give it to the banks and then the, it'll trickle down to everyone else. They They provided direct help. And as far as I can tell, that was fairly popular. Now, those programs, a lot of them expired. Now we're at a situation where they could make a new investment, uh, a new set of investments that certainly need to be made. And now it, it seems like they've forgotten the lesson. It, it, months and months of headlines of Biden and the Democrats removing key parts of their spending plan, key parts that are the most popular. That's what's so mind-blowing. I mean, one example is the drug pricing provisions. Granted, they have some very, very, very watered-down version of that has reportedly been added back into the bill. There's some deal about it. It's as stripped down as it can be. But the point is, is that polls show that allowing Medicare to negotiate lower prices for drugs is the single or one of the single most popular things that people know about the bill. And Democrats have spent months voting to block that provision from being added to the bill, generating headlines saying they're going to strip it out. Uh, It's the same down the line. Uh, Paid leave, very popular. Headlines about Democrats stripping out the paid leave programs. Uh, Medicare expansion, incredibly popular to uh, cover uh, dental, vision, and, and hearing. Incredibly popular. Guess what? This is apparently, or at least part of it, is apparently being stripped out of the bill. The $15 minimum wage, uh, that was stripped out of the uh, rescue plan. It's nowhere to be found. The point is, is that if you keep promising voters you're going to deliver things, and then you actually hold them out there as, hey, we're going to move to now deliver them now that we won one office, and then you end up siding with your corporate donors, not having the fight with your conservative uh, members of your own party, and stripping them out then come election time, you run the risk of voters saying, hey, you told me you were going to do all this stuff. You didn't do all this stuff. And so why should I believe anything that you're telling me? So my question is, if all that stuff gets stripped out, what does the Democratic Party have to sell to voters in the upcoming midterms? Now, I think part of the answer is they have one thing they have to sell is, hey, we have to elect us to halt the assault on democracy, halt the January 6th insurrectionists halt the uh, assault on voting rights legislation uh, in the states and at the federal level. Uh, And the problem is if you don't have a lot of economic policies, economic wins to sell to voters, you run the risk of having lots of voters say, hey, listen, I just used all those much vaunted democratic institutions uh, to get you into power to deliver for me. And now you're coming to me. You didn't deliver. And you're saying, please elect me to protect the democratic institutions that just delivered me you and you didn't deliver for the working class of this country that's why i think when you hear bernie sanders say uh, suggest that that the that there is a a link between economic policy uh, and the rise of authoritarianism in this country it's the same thing FDR was saying. It's an axiom that if you do not deliver for the public, you you re, you increase the risk that the public does not necessarily feel its vote matters, and that the public does not care about your democracy arguments.
1: There's an irony in this this dragged out uh, process in which you know one popular policy after another keeps getting shot down. Is that that was another insight of Schumer's from. Very early in the year, he he said, you know, another thing that we learned from two thousand nine, two thousand ten, is that we can't negotiate in in public on something like the Affordable Care Act for fourteen months, because people get sick of it and right. it, gener- it generates nothing but like these these bad headlines. Because the thing that the press is going to report for out for good reason is the thing that's coming out, because exactly. that's what, that's that's what's new and that's what's changing, and. Republicans seemed to get that when they when they did the Trump tax cuts. You know, they they put that sucker uh, on the floor within within just a couple of weeks of concocting the idea because they knew very well that they didn't want 6 months of news coverage of every single giveaway to billionaires that was you know working its way into into this tax what Democrats call the tax scam which and there were endless giveaways in this in this you know multi-trillion dollar tax cut for billionaires they just wrote it they released it made a few tweaks voted on it and and we're and we're done uh what do you think it is about democrats that they they can't move that move that quickly and they can't they can't move as efficiently as as republicans because it's not as if the tax code is necessarily simpler you know it was still a still a monster a piece oh, of sure. Legislation. Uh, I,
2: I think part of it is a lack of presidential leadership. Uh, I think that, that – look, we saw this with the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. Obama essentially delegated responsibility for the details of the bill to Congress. Now, obviously, constitutionally, that's what Congress does. But the point is, is that Obama very clearly said, listen, I'm going to wait for – the Max Baucus-run Senate Finance Committee and the House Ways and Means Committee to come up with a bill. I'll lay out a couple of principles, and they can duke it out, and then I'll kind of weigh in every now and again. That's much different than what we saw with, for instance, Donald Trump and his tax cuts, or George Bush and and those tax cuts. That the White House had a plan; they had a specific set of plans, uh, and they rammed it through Congress. Now there's got to be a middle ground there somewhere but the point is is that it's the same thing that's happened with Biden and the and the the current reconciliation bill. Uh, Biden is in a certain sense where is he? What is he what is he doing? Uh, why hasn't the White House been much more on the ball about a specific set of proposals going to different states to campaign for it? None of that has happened. Uh, and and you know, I, the one the one that kind of blows my mind, although I'm no longer surprised by this kind of thing. But okay, you can argue West Virginia. Biden lost. that He doesn't have as much political capital in a state like that. He won Arizona. He has a lot of uh, leverage to use in a place like Arizona uh, with somebody like Kirsten Cinema. That leverage, in my view, I, I don't see any evidence that that's even been used. So again, it comes back to. If your entire attitude is uh, conflict aversion with your own party, if you're trying to somehow appease your corporate donors and tell voters you're solving the problems created by your corporate donors, uh, and you have a hands off attitude about how to actually get an agenda passed, then you end up with what we have now a morass that's going on for weeks and weeks and months of. Capitulations and surrenders. And not surprisingly, that ends up being not all that popular. Joe Biden, one by one estimate, is at the lowest approval rating of any president in modern history at this time in his presidency. Uh, you can try to blame all sorts of external forces for that, but I think what's usually the most simple explanation is the correct one. And the most simple explanation is he and his White House have spent months generating headlines. Surrendering on the most popular
1: policies that people want. And it produced this extraordinary situation where while Democrats are in the midst of finalizing, you know, what would be the most significant investment in making parenting uh, less burdensome and less difficult in the history of the country uh, that they got wiped out by parents in an election. Like that—that that takes uh, some special skill it does. to do. Like, it does. I mean, if if they had done, if they had passed this bill in June, and spent the summer and the fall and fall talking about it, uh, they'd be on, I think, much better ground. That yeah, it's not, than a, guarantee. It out over, over it's not a guarantee. It's not a
2: guarantee, right? Yeah, I, I think sure. everyone should understand that it's it's not a guarantee that if you pass things that help people, you you will yes. end up successfully making the election about how you helped people. Uh, the uh, the opposition will try to throw sand in the gears uh for those plans but but the also the point is also true which is to say that at least if you've directly helped people you can go out and say hey listen i know they're yelling at you about this culture war issue or that issue but has your life improved you see that check that's coming in to help you be a parent that's what we do as a party that in in a sense delivering economically gives you politically the best chance to make politics about those economic issues and whether or not people's lives are materially improving, which any political party that knows how to do anything should be able to maximize. But if you go into an election and you don't have a compelling argument
1: that people's lives improved, then you are just making it harder to win. And whether it works electorally or not, the point of all this ought to be materially improving people's lives. <laughs> yes.
2: yes. Oh, it's like the Lyndon Johnson quote, right? The The quote where he said, and I'll butcher it here, but he essentially at one point in his in his presidency, they were talking, I can't remember if it was civil rights or Medicare, but he said, well, what the hell is the presidency for? Like, really, if you step back for a second, yes, uh, delivering to help people in an economic crisis is good politics. It should help uh, prevent a disastrous uh, midterm elections. No guarantee, but it should help. But that should be the secondary point. The primary point is, is that people are hurting and what we should all be focused on is making the government help people, help the public, uh, help the society through that crisis. But I think so much of our politics, especially by the way, especially liberal left of center politics is focused mostly on uh, playing pundit. Oh, will this help or hurt the next election? Uh, but I think in this situation, helping the country and the political argument, what is good electorally, those two things happen to be congruent. And in fact, I would argue that they are typically uh, congruent, and the what's mind blowing to me is that, and I say this after reporting, you know, spending two years reporting this meltdown series. What's mind blowing to me is that after the Virginia and New Jersey elections, there's still this dialogue out there in the elite media that uh, the election results prove that Democrats should help people less in order to prepare for the midterm election. That that Democrats need to pare back their agenda even more. Uh, in order to ward off a disastrous midterm election, I, that doesn't make any sense at all. W- what is the empirical evidence for that? What is the logical evidence for that? That the best way to go into a midterm election is to move to is to is to actually reduce the amount of things you're doing. That is exactly what the Obama administration did, and we haven't even talked about just the icing on the cake. After the Obama administration didn't deliver. On the Wall Street, watered down the Wall Street reform bill. The bailout was a top-down bailout. It didn't do cram down. It wasn't prosecuting Wall Street executives. Right before the election in 2010, it pivoted to cutting Social Security. It pivoted to the Social Security Commission. Now, look, I don't like to make uh, Nazi uh, direct Nazi uh, comparisons. Uh, you know, Godwin's law. You don't do that, and I'm not right. making a direct comparison, but there is an echo from history here that is screaming at us and we wrote about this alex gibney the uh, executive producer of of meltdown and i did in rolling stone which is there was a study that recently came out that showed that in weimar germany that the counties the districts that had been hit hardest by the austerity policies of the centrist weimar government at the time those were the specific counties that flipped the hardest to the Nazis. The point is not to say that America is going to become a Nazi country, but the point is to say that when you don't deliver for working people, and then you turn to a an austerity agenda, we're actually going to you know, belt tighten. We're going to cut. So you know they cut German, the German version of Social Security. We're going to do all this in the name of being fiscally responsible. There's one school of thought that would say, well, that should prompt more voters to be more socialist like hey this is unacceptable we're going to vote but in fact what what we learn from history is it actually makes it, it tends to create the conditions for even more uh, right-wing policies so the idea in advance of this m- midterm election that the democrats need to see the virginia and new jersey results and actually reduce their reconciliation bill even more you hear joe manchin is starting to beat that drum where does that make any sense at all? What is that based on? It's it's insane.
1: Well, the the podcast is called Meltdown, and it explains how insane that is. It's available on Audible. Uh, Audible is not, in fact, paying us for this. It was a pleasure to have you on, of our own free will. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That was David Sirota, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week.